Any of you who have come across me before will know that I'm addicted to new discoveries and things that we didn't know before. And you will all recall, I'm sure, there's a pleasurable aspect of this subject, that when you were challenged by your friends studying biology or physics in the bar, uh, and they would say, nothing surely has changed in hundreds of years in the subject that you're doing, you were able to refute them with the latest archaeology and the new documents and uh, the new insights. And it's that that I hope to continue a little bit in a, a, a short talk, which um, will take the form more of word pictures than of literal pictures, uh, and will provide you, I hope, with some uh, of this novelty. But we'll move on from the simple new data to some of the new kinds of interpretation that might be based on it, so that it isn't just uh, a, a list of new discoveries. Now, uh, we're nothing if not topical, and my first example is therefore going to come from just off the coast of the Crimea. <laughs> my opening scene comes from an island called Luque, which you will see marked on the map on the back of the, of the handout. Now, it enables me to ask you another question, not quite a riddle like the one with which I started this morning, but uh, I, the question is a, perhaps a bit like those that the Emperor Tiberius used to tease his guests with. And this question requires you to recall your classical mythology. And the question is, when did Achilles and Helen, this is one for Bethany, really, when did Achilles and Helen meet <coughs> and fall in love? And where did they set up house together? <laughs> the first part of the question is a trick question because, as the ancient mythographers were careful to point out, because Helen had been spirited away, Achilles never actually met her until the realm of myth, until the realm of the etiological myth in particular, which gave them that appropriate happy ending meeting in which the most beautiful of women and the greatest of the heroes should come together. But there was nowhere on earth where they had been fated to dwell together. So something had to be created specially for them and Poseidon, the Poseidon of the Iliad, was equal to the challenge. He got the waters of the great rivers that flow into the Black Sea to swirl around in the currents until their sediments piled up a new island which had never existed before and therefore was not among the lands in which they had not been fated to live. <laughs> <laughs> now, I hope you're with the logic on this one. <laughs> And so new land, which had never been seen before, became the place where Achilles and Helen consummated their perfectly desirable love. And the island is the white island off the mouth of the Danube in the Black Sea. And on that island stood the sanctuary of Achilles, the ruler of the Black Sea, frequented by merchants from all over that part of the world who were never allowed to spend the night on Achilles' island. It was completely prohibited for any mortal to dwell there. 
Instead, ships would anchor off in the mists of the northern Black Sea, where it was a common experience to hear Achilles practicing his battle cry (laughs) and to hear the endlessly repeated nuptial banquet of Achilles and Helen, repeated with song and dance and music all night long, wafting a really high volume. Actually, it must be rather a tiresome party to have to listen to. <laughs> uh, but at really high volume across the waters of the Black Sea towards the ships anchored, waiting to pay their respects to the hero who would protect their voyaging around the Black Sea. Now, this is attested more or less in a number of different, rather uh, uh, less familiar ancient texts. The bulk of it comes from Philostratus's Heroicus. It's also alluded to in Pausanias. But it comes further. The island and its cult and its special function come in a slightly different form in the text which I want to revoke through this example, which I've chosen, of course, because it enables me to to pick up the Helen from the title uh, of our day's experience today. And that text is The Sailing Voyage Round the Black Sea, written by Arian of Nicomedia in the form of a letter to the Emperor Hadrian in the early 2nd century AD. Now, you might have thought that the Emperor Hadrian, you've just seen the figure that John Boardman rather coyly called his favourite, Antinous, in a beautiful image in front of us. Uh, uh, You know about Hadrian's view of the world, And you know that the story of the consummation of the love between the most beautiful woman and the most potent hero is perhaps not the one with which you would most readily try and please the Emperor Hadrian. Sure enough, if you look at Arian's account of the island of Luce in the Periplus of the Black Sea, it is not Achilles and Helen who are to be found most readily on the island of Luce, but Achilles and Patroclus. (laughs) Uh, And so the story has been modified for the benefit of the the imperial audience. But it's not so much Luce itself, though it's a fascinating case, one we've known about forever, really. Uh, It's not the island itself as Arian's text that I want to begin with because Arian's text is one of two periploi, which I want to introduce you to, two which make something of the point that I was making to you in my introductory remarks this morning, because a journey round the Black Sea, past the roots of the Caucasus, past Sochi of recent fame, (laughs) past, uh, past the mouths of the Danube, takes one along coasts which you obviously think of as part of the Roman Empire, and into areas which are by no means so obviously part of the world under Roman control. It takes us, it takes Arian's readers through a whole variety of historical contexts as he passes Trebizond at the eastern end of the south coast of the Black Sea. He evokes the monument which has been put up to honour Hadrian at the place where Xenophon and the 10,000 came out of the mountains of eastern Turkey and made their famous cry of Thalassa, Thalassa, as they saw the familiar sea below them. And he evokes a whole series of historical contexts and present realities, the garrisons, the cohorts that are based here and there. It's a marvellous melding of the mythical and religious past, of ancient history, of ancient literature 
and the covered actualities of the Alans, the barbarians against whom the governor of Cappadocia, which is uh, Arian's job, is bound to fight. So it's an extraordinary text, but it's one which is not bounded by the end of the Roman, by the edge of the Roman Empire, and it's not fixed in time. It evokes a whole variety of different worlds in the way which I was saying this morning. What are the sailors who frequent the island of Luke doing? What are the traders who go round the Black Sea and who are uh, attested by Arian's account up to? Well, they're engaged in exchanges which, like the horizon of the Periplus, go far beyond the world of the Pontus Euxenos. We now know, and here is a novelty for you, we now know of the extraordinary iron smelting industry of the Holy Cross Mountains in the Carpathians in Poland, the outlet to which was down the great river valleys which lead into the Black Sea. We have a much better vision of the way in which the whole of the southern steppe was penetrated by these rivers which give access to the commercial circuits of the Black Sea. We understand the routes that lead to the Caspian across the isthmus below the slopes of the Caucasus. We can see the world around Arian's evocation. And that gives us a picture of these circuits which are not bounded by Roman power. Uh, the first of two instances which I want to use in my opening remarks to set the scene. So my second then, come back to Trebizond and the eastern edge of the Roman Empire in a second. My second scene my, is a second periplus, the more famous periplus. Arians is less familiar, but a larger and much more uh, commonly used text is the coasting voyage round the Indian Ocean, the periplus of the Erythrean Sea. Much larger scale, many more exotic places, rather earlier than Arians' text, in the middle of the first century of our era, the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea has long been famous as what's usually described as a merchant's handbook, outlining the conditions in the harbours of southern Arabia and uh, of Kush, uh, uh, Kerch rather, the, uh, the areas of the, the, the uh, Gulf of Barugaza, the, the west coast of India, the approaches to Sri Lanka, the commodities, the political circumstances, the prices even. It looks at first sight rather like a merchant's handbook and it's been famous for that for quite a long time. We now know, and every day practically, certainly every year, we're finding out more about the details of what is going on in the circuit that is outlined by the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea. And my next two examples of novelties, which are also illustrated on the maps in which, you, which you have in front of you and by the single text that you have in front of you, have really been very surprising. The first that I want to draw to your attention is a papyrus, which tells us about the cargo of a ship which put in, in the mid-2nd century of our era, at one of the ports on the Egyptian side of the Red Sea. They're marked on the map of the Red Sea that you have in front of you, Mios Hormos, the harbour of the mouse, and Berenike. And the, the text in question is a customs account. 
doesn't sound very interesting at first, but it's a customs account which details the duty payable on every item in the cargo of a single ship. And it tells us where the ship was from. The ship is called the Hermapollon, Hermapollon, sorry, and it comes from the town of Musiris, which is in Kerala, in South India. And the cargo of the Horapollon is as varied and exotic as you might expect, a kind of classic John Macefield evocation of nard and pepper and cardamom and aloes and all of that sort of thing. It's exactly the Queen of Sheba stuff that you expect it to be. And the prices on which the customs duty was paid are also listed in this papyrus. And the Roman Empire charged a modest 25% (laughs) on importations into its space. So uh, we can work out from the part of the papyrus that is preserved, of course no papyrus is ever complete, uh, what we've got, however, enables us to assert that that part of the cargo of this single ship in the mid-2nd century from Musiris, the value was 7 million sesterces. Now you'll recall from your ancient history in the past that the census requirement of a Roman senator was one million sesterces worth of property. So this part of this cargo was valued at the capital which would entitle seven people to be Roman senators. What the whole cargo was worth, how many ships of this kind came in, who knows. But it's an extraordinary insight into the detailed nature of the trade, backed up by a whole range of other things. There are now Tamil graffiti from these ports on the uh, west coast of the Red Sea. Graffiti in uh, the prototype of the scripts which were used later for the Dravidian languages of um, uh, the southern end of the subcontinent. Uh, The whole raft of uh, new evidence showing the density, frequency, and value of these connections across the Indian Ocean, the world that is evoked and has been evoked, uh, we've known for for ages, about the the periplus of the Erythrean Sea. So a second new detail, which is in its own way even more surprising than the Musiris Papyrus, and is even more recent, is the text which you have at the top of that handout. I haven't insulted you by giving you an English translation of it. It's uh, not a very difficult piece of Latin. And it's, uh, in fact, I'm sure you would say, blimey, I remember inscriptions like that. That's the really boring side of Roman history, period three, as it used to be. Uh, However, although military inscriptions of that kind are 10 asystertius, and this has numerous parallels from all over the Roman Empire, this one was carved into a rock face Uh, 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 it's not a loose stone it's actually carved into the native rock and it's where it was carved that is the surprise if you look at that same map of the Red Sea you will see down towards the Strait of Babel Mandeb which is where the Red Sea goes into the Indian Ocean you will see an archipelago of which you probably haven't previously heard called the Farasan Archipelago And you will see that the inscription is dedicated by a vexillation of a Roman legion of the second Legio Triana Fortis and its auxilia and its camp uh, guard. 
and they are based in the Portus Ferrisani. And that's where the rock-cut inscription is. There is an actual garrison of the Roman army in the Pharisan archipelago in the reign of Hadrian and the early part of the reign of Antoninus Pius. And look where it is. Look at the Egyptian delta at the top of that rather faint map. Look at the extraordinary distance that you are outside anything that you thought earlier was the Roman Empire. And this is not just a Roman wandering around. This is a formal, properly based detachment of the Roman army, a legionary of exhalation, Roman citizens, that is, Roman citizen soldiers, under a prefect, permanently based in this archipelago off the coast of Yemen. Now, you can put my two new facts together relatively easily. The value of the trade that's coming in in ships like the Horapollon, worth more than the fortunes of seven senators, and the detachment of the Roman army of the east, based just inside the Strait of Bab el-Mandeb, are two facts to put together. We are dealing with two things which we didn't know before. The kind of ordinary low-grade one is just how much more there is in the Roman Empire in any obvious sense than you believed before. How much bigger the Roman Empire is, if you like, finding these soldiers hundreds and hundreds of kilometres outside any area in which Roman soldiers had previously been attested. That's amazing enough, but it is, as I say, kind of low grade. The higher grade fact, and the one which I want to conjure with a bit, is that we have all thought for ever so long that the Roman government didn't do things for economic reasons. <laughs> Even when it was a question of maximizing their 25% take from the customs duties of the age of the empire. But now we can see Roman soldiers based absolutely clearly in a context which can only be fiscal economic. It can only reflect the importance to the people who decide where Roman legionary garrisons are to be based, an importance in their mind of the whole world that is represented by the periplus of the Erythraean Sea and by those connections round the Indian Ocean. And that means down the coast of East Africa, there were Roman finds further south than Zanzibar, below the equator, down the Swahili coast of East Africa. There were Roman finds, of course, all the way across South India. The Poitinger table map, that strange late antique enigma, marks at Musiris, as it happens, a thing which has always puzzled us, called Templum Augusti. <laughs> Why is there a temple of the imperial cult marked on the Poitinger table in Kerala? Well, it all becomes a little bit clearer. We were delighted a few years ago, and we are talking about the Hejaz. So the Hejaz, I'm picking up now on the second element of our title today. We were surprised and pleased when the other year at Madain Saleh in the Hejaz, that's also marked on that map, we discovered another legionary of exhalation and another temple of the imperial cult, thereby proving that deep in Saudi Arabia, deep in the northern Hejaz, quite close to Mohammed's stamping ground that Tom was evoking for us this morning, we have a great Roman trading centre and a temple of the divinised Roman emperors and representatives of the Roman legionary garrison of Bosra in Arabia Felix on the Via Triana, which is marked at the top of that map. So that was exciting enough, but it pales into insignificance by comparison with what we've now discovered from... Uh, the uh, Farasan Archipelago. 
this is all part of a shift in what the documentation for the ancient world has started to tell us since the days that probably you're most familiar with. It's particularly, and, and there's a simple explanation for this, when you look back on the things that were new and exciting when you studied the subject, I wouldn't mind betting that they came from places which were yielding a crop of interesting discoveries because they were just being developed. Because the tourist trade or new industrialization or uh, massive urbanization were affecting parts of Europe or the Mediterranean and as a result there was a huge crop of archaeology and inscriptions and documents. Now that's happening on a much larger scale in other places too and therefore places where no investigation has ever been done before are beginning to yield a harvest which we didn't know was there to be reaped. And that, I think, is part of the explanation for this expansion of our knowledge beyond the, uh, the old traditional areas. I could have talked about, though my colleague Andrew Wilson would be much better placed to do this than I, I could have talked about the Garamantian civilization in the heart of the Sahara and the dense contacts of economic uh, interdependence between the heart of the Sahara and the Roman coast round Lepkis Magna and Sabratha. Uh, another dimension which we had no idea of before and which now is beginning to be picked up by Roman inscriptions even further south across the Sahara on their way to the Niger Bend and to Lake Chad and evoking trans-Saharan trade as early as the beginning of the first century AD. But uh, I'm going to look east rather than south in these remarks. I could have evoked for you the discovery of the Elephantine Papyrus, another customs receipt, this one from the early 5th century BC, giving us all of the departures and arrivals at a port of the Egyptian delta in the year 475 BC. A complete year's record of the captains, the origin of the ship, the cargo of the ship in uh, that year of the Achaemenid period. The next such record of a complete year of customs duties in a Mediterranean port comes from Genoa in the 14th century. So there's the scale of the transformation of our knowledge. Uh, I'd like you, you could ask me over tea if you like, uh, but think about it. What do you think the number of ships is? Do you think four? 58? 111? 1,605? What number do you think it was? I'll tell you at tea time. <laughs> and much more recently, fresh last year indeed, uh, and also from an earlier period, but in the parallel area to the Red Sea, Bahrain in the Gulf now turns out to be the headquarters of a sub-satrapy of the kingdom of Karakene, which is a sub-Seleucid client state at the mouth of the Tigris and the Euphrates. This now turns out to be part of the satrapy of Tilos and the Islands, an entity which we knew as little about before as we did about the Pontus Hercules and the Portus Ferrisani, which you see attested in the inscription from the Red Sea. So you see how much is changing and where we're getting. Now, I don't have long, uh, uh, even allowing for the fact that I started a little late, I don't have long to draw the conclusions uh, I'm going to try to indicate the kind of conclusions. I don't want to leave you with the sense that uh, I, I'm just piling up some interesting new facts. We all love those, as I said at the beginning, but it's what we do with them 
that matters. It's how we build them into our picture, not the mere inventorying of this new data. How does this affect how we think the Romans thought about their imperium? How does this affect how we think that the ancients thought about their oikumene, the world which they inhabited, and its boundaries, and its textures, and its cohesions, and its exclusions? How does the whole of that thinking about us and them, home and away, how does that change with this kind of picture? If we now see the edge of the Roman Empire not so much as a bristling line of limites, but as a 25% customs boundary, how does that change our picture from when you did citizen settlement and the edges of the Roman Empire and learnt about the limes on the, uh, in the Veterao, as no doubt some of you did in the 1960s and 1970s? What about the, the incense trade and the, the dynamic of the, the trade from the south to the north, which articulated the eastern edge of the Roman Empire and was picked up by the road which the Emperor Trajan built from Trebizond, in my first example, to Aqaba on the Red Sea, in my second example, turning the line of south-north communications into the centerpiece of a limes which united as much as it divided Rome from enemies outside the empire. I give you one case of a completely new rereading by a French scholar of the Periplus of the Eritrean Sea, which shows you a little bit about what we can do as a result of our new knowledge. Instead of a merchant's handbook, this scholar, Pascal Arnaud, has argued that the the point of the Periplus of the Eritrean Sea is to diminish the excitement of all that was suddenly turning up about the gigantic scale of the Southern Ocean. And his argument is that once Roman traders started to go frequently down the Swahili coast south of Zanzibar and they observed the stars, they knew that they were in the Southern Hemisphere. They knew that the Southern Hemisphere was habitable. They knew that it existed outside the realm of Greek theoretical astronomy. And they knew how far away it was and that those calculations which the Greeks had made were correct. Now that, says Professor Arnaud, is devastating because it makes the Mediterranean look like, well, a fog pond. <laughs> Because the Indian Ocean has to be absolutely enormous, and it's clinched by the astronomy once you get south of the equator. So, says Professor Arno, the Periplus is an attempt to put the clock back and say, this is not the most exciting discovery ever. Regent Caesar never knew, stout Cortez with eagle eyes, etc. It's nothing like that. It's just another area in which we do business as usual, trading from harbour to harbour, and what's the price of silk in Baru Gaza? So it's an attempt to normalise the extraordinary cat-out-of-the-bag revelation of how large the world is and what a small place in it is actually occupied by the Roman Empire, even with a garrison in the Ferrisan archipelago. So that's one of the... That's an example, whether true or not, that's an example of the kind of revolution in our thinking that can come about from new discoveries of this sort. Now, I'd like to be able, in the interests of producing a kind of prequel to what Tom was saying this morning, I'd like to have time.
to be able to explore further the significance of what we now know about how that great contact zone represented by Trajan's Road from Trebizond to Aqaba and uh, by the incense trade and by the interface between the Aramaic world and the Greek world along the hinge between the diptychs of the Mediterranean world and Asia and the Indian Ocean, how that has played in history. Because Islam is not the first great religious change to be based on precisely that fault line. How many of you have been to Jerusalem and seen, looking west, the fertile Mediterranean slopes cascading down to the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean and turned round to face east and seen the savage aridity of the desert dropping away steeply down to the Jordan Rift Valley. Jerusalem is poised on this contact zone between these worlds. And so is Baalbek, and so is Hierapolis Bambike, and so is Dolike, and so is Damascus, and so is Palmyra. All of these great centres of religious change, centres of cults which spread east and west across the Roman and Parthian worlds in antiquity, and which formed the prototype of religions which draw their strength from the borderland which they inhabit between different cultural and social worlds. So one could go into a great deal of detail about that, but rather than keeping you all afternoon, I will instead end with a single new insight into that world which I've just evoked. The island of Socotra is to be found just outside the Babel Mandeb. It's a strange island covered in endemic vegetation, vegetation which grows nowhere else, not frequently visited by tourists, though tourism is beginning. It's, as you will see instantly from its location on the map, it's potentially of the greatest of importance, not just to Somali pirates, but to all who sail in those waters in and out of the Red Sea. There's a mountain in the middle of the island of Socotra, and in the mountain there's a deep cave. The cave is called the Hock, and the cave is cold enough and wet enough and acidic enough to be anaerobic, deep among the stalactites in the heart of the cave, way underground, is a place which was venerated by the people who sailed in those waters at almost every period. There are cultic deposits to deities brought with them by these sailors, for just like on the island of Achilles, just, on, just as like the traders on the island of Luque, dedications to protect their journey home. And because of the anaerobic conditions, wood survives. One of the tablets dedicated in this cave is a wooden tablet which carries a date in the Seleucid era. It's a dedication to the gods of the city of Palmyra. And it's written in Palmyrene. And it's dated to the year AD 254. So what 
You write the novel for yourselves. Perhaps we'll ask Tom to do this. <laughs> what is a Palmarine merchant doing deep in a cave on the island of Socotra in the year 254 as the Roman Empire approaches its first major crisis? I leave you with the question. <laughs>